All right, this is Jeffrey, and this is my show, Plain Spoken. And because I uh, have all these fun toys to play with, I get to talk to people on the internet and make it look kind of good. And I uh, am very spoiled. I, I get to speak with all kinds of. Uh, I've spoken with bishops. I've spoken with people in Africa. Uh, today I'm speaking with someone in the exotic land of Pennsylvania. Um, I'm joined by uh, Reverend Joe DePaolo, who um, I, I only knew him in one capacity that I'm going to introduce here in a little bit, but he is, um, uh, to my surprise and delight, well, not surprise, but it's just everybody in the Methodist tent is not always academically minded. They're not always focused on theory. We have a lot of eminently just practical, salt-of-the-earth people uh, and I enjoy those people, but I also really enjoy speaking with people as intelligent, as it turns out, Joe DiPaolo is, um, and he's a, a conference leader in his annual conference. He's He's been a player on in the general church level for a long time. Um, if you don't know who he is, uh, and I don't know how many people know who he is, the, the reason I'm having him on, the juicy thing up front that, that will help you hold on is that uh, he is something of a whistleblower about the institution um, uh, and, and what I've been Filming, I, I'm concerned about forces at play in the institution that do not incentivize righteousness or transparency. And uh, 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 Reverend DePaulo was uh, serving on the the commission for general conference, and he exposed that their business was not conducted in good faith. Um, that's my words. I'm going to let him use his own words. But before we get into that, uh, I just want to say thank you for joining me, Joe. Welcome on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's uh... It's an honor to be with you. I like the work you do. Well, I appreciate that. Um, the the work you do, uh, you're not just a pastor of a local church that is very missionally oriented. Um, you also have published a number of articles on um, very interesting topics like whether or not slavery, the slavery issue maps very uh, neatly onto the LGBTQ and, and gender identity issues before us. Um, you've written on what, uh, I don't think you've written anything on wokeness, but you have written on social justice and um, how, how helpful that is as a construct within the church. Um, and you've written about, uh, you've written a lot more than I've read, but uh, you're clearly engaged in a lot of the topics that, um, you know, I'm interested in, and I don't know if for you if it's, it's I, well, I doubt for you that it's clearly, uh, plainly academic. I mean, it's eminently useful when you're ministering to people who are swimming in the cultural soup that we're in. So um, maybe before we get into the juicy thing, you could speak um, for a couple minutes about um, your church and your ministry and how it is that you connect the the study that you've done to ministering to your flock. Well, for nearly eight years now, I've been the lead pastor of the First United Methodist Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Lancaster City. It's a downtown urban church. Um, by Northeastern standards, a larger church. We have a little under 900 members, three services on Sunday, but it's a very missionally oriented congregation. We do a lot of outreach stuff to the community. It's seven days a week, the church is hopping. There's uh, between ministries we run or, or space we make available to community groups like recovery groups. Uh, there's always the parking lot's full and there's, there's people coming in and out the door all the time. Um, one of the things that we that I inaugurated in my first year actually was a feeding ministry that is now um, its own 501c3 nonprofit and has its own staff of four. I'm chairman of the board still, and uh, we feed 150 people a day all year long uh, a breakfast, uh, many of whom are living on the street or are working poor. Uh, we support missions around the world. I just came back from a trip to Africa to Sierra Leone to visit a, a mission that we support there, a wonderful experience. Got to baptize uh, uh, people on the river. Got to lead services, preach before Muslim audiences. It was really neat. Um, so it's it's been a really great joy to be here, part of this congregation. It goes way way back. It's more than two hundred years old. Francis Asbury preached here, and uh, so it's it's got a great hist a great history. And that's one of my passions also is um, is is our history and heritage. Um, for more than twenty years, I was the president of our historical society. I published a local journal of articles and I just love doing that stuff. And I think it's, to me, it was a way to try to help people remember who we are and what we're about. I, I, I think if we forget the past, we forget who we really are. Um, so, but I think for me, the keeping my a hand in academic type stuff and research and writing, just a way to keep my mind going fresh. And I use a lot of that in my preaching and teaching and, and get opportunities to speak sometimes to other churches about you know, early Methodism. I did some adjunct teaching 
um, for Methodist theology and history at local seminaries. So I just, you know, I just love that stuff. I think it's, I think it's a lot to learn from history. And one of my concerns is that we're not learning from history today. That in right. a lot of ways, I think what we're doing today is is mirroring mistakes that were made in the past of conforming to contemporary cultural movements, because that's the dominant thinking, and we and people thought the church had to conform to that to mm -hmm. to reach people. Um, and it was and now we look back and think it was a mistake when it came to things like slavery or the role of women in the church. And, but now we're doing the same thing when it comes to sexuality. It's very right. strange. Yeah, well, and it, it kind of taps into there's there's a comeuppance that comes whenever we don't do the hard work of constructing a coherent ecclesiology, uh, mm -hmm. uh, a theology of the church, and what what it is that we're doing. Are when people come in, are we simply blessing and sanctifying what it is that they're doing in their daily lives, or are we helping them to step out of their lives, encounter something mm -hmm. otherworldly, and then reorient them to enter into their lives and live differently? And when there's confusion about that, um, well, and in, in, there's always confusion in the in pews, but whenever people filling the pulpits don't even know exactly what they're supposed to be doing, that's really a problem. So it's very liberating sure. for, for people like you and me and people in our position to be able to step out of our cultural context, speak to what's going on in Sierra Leone, speak to what was going on in this exact same place 200 years ago, speak to what right. was going on in the early church. Um, I, I appreciated... Uh, in the article I read this morning about how how neatly the slavery issue maps onto the current uh, sexual identity issues, you said um, a, another counterexample for what we could be encountering is not slavery 2.0, but is actually the Aryan controversy 2.0, mm. where there is there is there is a prevalent prevailing ascendant ideology that has taken root in the church that is actually not an expression of the gospel, but we're not going to have that discernment and be able to offer that discernment if we can't step out of where we are. Um, and so I, I, in your historical bit, and I, yeah, I hadn't talked about your historical um, uh, credentials, but uh, you've published a number of things, written a number of things. Uh, it seems to me, am I right in understanding that your, your primary um, area of expertise in the history of the Methodist movement and Protestantism in general is like 19th century America? That's where my, most of my interest has been, yeah, sure. Yeah, that's my weak point. I know the early point and I know the late point, but the middle points, the connecting tissue is really important. So maybe we'll... One of the reasons that I've... One of the reasons I think I got attracted to it is because people don't know that part of the story. And I think we were really decisively shaped by that period in so many ways that that are still with us today. Of course, um, yeah. You know, how we dealt with slavery and segregation, how we restructured the church in the wake of the Civil War, how we... Uh, united the church in the 1930s um, and introduced the jurisdictional system, which I think has been the root of a lot of our problems today structurally. Yeah, and I've, I've seen smarter people than me write about how it is that the jurisdictional system really uh, severed the connection in many ways and, and made it uh, inoperable. Um, I don't want to get into that because I'm not smart enough to talk about it. But um, I, I do think it's good to have experts who, who do understand that stuff. Um, I'm going to try and remember another nerdy question that I want to ask you later about progressivism, but I want to, um, I said I wanted to get into the, the juiciest thing I knew about, but I, before that, I, I think it's important to establish what it is that you love about Methodism, because you didn't grow up in the Methodist tradition, I don't think. Um, no. So you came to Methodism as an adult, you chose it. Um, I, I think there's an easy caricature that people fit, people like you and me, into where we're motivated by hate and disdain and rejection of something. And that, that doesn't comport with the people that I know of. I, I, I think love is a primary motivator. So um, for anyone who's watching who's maybe um, skeptical of you and me having good motivations, perhaps you could speak to the, the motivating love that has brought you into Methodist, the Methodist tent and what it is that, that is driving your public witness. Well, I, long story short, I was raised Roman Catholic. Um, and as a, as a Roman Catholic, I've Got a good training in uh, right and wrong, good and bad, but not so much in understanding grace. And I think uh, having experienced then grace in my college years, it was a liberating thing. Uh, I eventually chose to leave the Roman church. And uh, what drew me to Methodism were, were a couple things. One was just I began to read uh, Wesley. A lot of my friends were Calvinists, and something about the whole Calvinist predestinarian scheme just never quite sat right with me. Mm -hmm. And in reading Wesley, I, I really resonated this this is uh, this is a really good 
understanding of how God's grace works. Um, also, I just felt I was being led by God to come to the Methodist church. My wife now of 38 years was a Methodist, um, got involved in her church and her pastor really encouraged me. And, and I guess what, what has always appealed to me is the way the Methodism, you know, historically anyway, with beginning with Wesley has always been able to hold together things that don't stay together very well in many Protestant areas, you know, uh, both justification and sanctification, both the, the personal uh, witness and also the social engagement, both the evangelical message and the sacramental understanding. I mean, we have this both and approach to me mm -hmm. that to me makes Methodism very holistic and very appealing again, understood in its classical Wesleyan way. Sure. And so yeah. all that drew me. Well, so the, um, I've seen a video of you more recently where you gave a presentation with kind of a bird's eye view of the United Methodist Church and some of the more recent history leading to where we are. And one of the things about our denomination uh, was formed a little over 50 years ago with great idealism, and I think it was undergirded by an acknowledgement of what you just said, where the Methodist tradition holds things in tension quite well that other traditions have not managed. And it seems to me that that, that optimism about how holding things in tension is what oriented their vision for a big tent church, where we, we could hold people of all theological persuasions in together with the common methodology, ecclesiology, or, you know, a form of government. Um, so far as I'm concerned, that's a massive failure. We were trying to hold things together that just don't fit. Um, <laughs> is there a way? I uh, So at this point in history, I look back, and I, I can't help but be dismissive of those minds at the time and just go, man, they thought they were going to make something work that is never going to work. It was never going to work. It was failed from the, the start. Do you agree with me that it was it was that abundantly clear to anyone with a, a discerning historical mind? Because um, it seems to me that I've got to be out of place here. By all accounts, Albert Outler was a very intelligent man who fully believed in what the, the project was. Um, do you agree with me that it's as black and white clear that it was just way too optimistic and it was set up to fail from the beginning? Or do you think that uh, there really was no reason to believe that they couldn't pull it off? Now, I guess I would disagree some. I think, I don't think, you know, we all tend to be the product of our times. One of the great things about studying history is that we all have our blind spots, but mm -hmm. our blind spots are not the same ones that people 100 years ago or 50 years ago had. So I I think that they, I don't think that it was clear that it was, it was a bad idea. I don't, my sense is that a lot of the folks like Outler, they were not necessarily interested in, I mean, he was, he was the guy that led the recovery of, the knowledge of Wesley and, and Wesley's writings in so many ways. Mm -hmm. So I don't think he envisioned the idea of holding um, what, what, what would now be considered really radically progressive views within that. I don't, but they were part, they were a product of that time. It wasn't an optimistic. It, it was part of the whole um, kind of the tail end of the whole kind of ecumenical impulse of the 20th century that tried to bring things together. Um, I think the main problems with the merger had more to do with structures that were put in place than with the intentions of those who did it. Um, and mainly, I think the biggest issue was, again, importing the jurisdictional structure, which was a legacy of racism. And what the jurisdictional structure did in the US was basically balkanize the church. Mm -hmm. You had um, very different cultures that developed in the Western jurisdiction from the Southeastern jurisdiction. You also severed the connection of bishops, the accountability of bishops to the general church because their accountability was only to their jurisdiction. And so if a jurisdiction like in the West uh, becomes really dominated by, as it has, progressive thinking, mm -hmm. then the judicial council can say, wait a minute, the election of an openly gay bishop is against the discipline. You can't do that. They just ignore it. Mm -hmm. And it stops there. So I, think, so I think the structure was not thought through very well. That part is, I think, had more to do with it. So I, 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 would, I would argue and uh, we've already established who the intelligent one in this conversation is. So. You correct me, but uh, it seems to me that far leftism is ideologically hostile and, and over time gains ground and, and excludes everything mm -hmm. uh, that doesn't comport with its its method its ideology. And so to me, I, I don't want to argue against, yes, the structure definitely worked in favor of balkanizing the church and allowing uh, victories in some areas before others. But it does seem to me that the the flaw from the start, was creating a body that was hospitable to an ideology that was 
uh, intolerant, ultimately, of, of anything that resembles early Wesleyan theology. And I, I just think, I think it was an inevitability from the, I, it was a lack of reckoning with liberal theology and what it leads to from the beginning that imagined that they could, well, and that's what I was talking with the centrist yesterday who believes that they are going to be able to use the machinery of the denomination after the conservatives are gone. They're going to use the, mm -hmm. the machinery of the denomination to keep the far left in check. And I'm just not that optimistic. I, do you no. agree with me that, that that ideology, once it's allowed on the inside, is going to destroy and take over? Yeah, I, I think, yes. I think that it, you're right in that it did open that door. I don't think it was until 1972 that that door really got open. In 68, when the church merged, they initially decided to just keep both doctrinal statements of the EUB and the United and the Methodist Church side by side. And they appointed a commission that people thought was going to result in the creating of a new set of doctrinal standards. Instead, what they came out with was the statement in 1972 that endorsed theological pluralism. Right. Right? That yeah. was the moment when they really opened the door to to what then then came out afterwards. And I think you're right that it did open that door. But I also think that there was a there was an older kind of liberal that is that was much more. I mean, I'm older. I'm 61, and I, you know, when I came into the conference in the 80s, some of the the elders of the conference were of an earlier generation where they, the the kind of classical liberals were much more amenable to working together and much less hostile, much less exclusionary. There was much more of a sense of, yeah, we'll take some things for granted together. Um, it's, it's changed a big time in the last 35, 40 years, culturally. And I think that's been the, the influence of the larger culture. Well, surely, yeah, there's there's no way to to separate the two altogether. But there is, um, I, I, uh, I did a piece on reviewing um, Bishop Bickerton's State of the Church Address, where he, mm -hmm. he talks about that without any um, self-awareness about how easily that argument could be applied to him and the leadership oh, yeah. of the bishops over the last 20 years, and where where someone like me would say that, that the bishops are in place to guard the gates and to make sure that we do not allow things to get too far in resembling what's going on in the world, that they instead sure. leaned into it and utilized those those cultural forces and pressures in order to an advance, advance an agenda on the right side of history or with the, the moral arc... Uh, uh, of, of Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. And right. it, it, it seems, I don't know, maybe there was a way, I guess everybody was imagining there was a way that reasonable, centrist, liberal uh, leadership would not allow the far left to take over and would work hand in hand with conservatives indefinitely. Um, and I guess, yeah, looking at the 70s and 80s, well, see, that's what seems so crazy to me, though, because we saw what the far left did in the 1960s, especially in 68 and 69, you just see how it can really go off the rails and how reason just ab abandons. And did I guess people at the time just imagined that there would be some kind of uh, uh, theistic force at play that would keep that from happening uh, uh, or within our own body. Yeah, and of course the leadership of the denomination at that time were not the folks that were riding in the streets. I mean, they were older of a different generation. Um, I. Yeah, I think in the 70s, what you saw was the the more liberal wing of the church kind of steering the ship. But then in the 80s, it started to come back. I mean, you, you, you people again in the late 70s, early 80s began to realize, wait a minute, uh, we're moving in a direction where our church is characterized by this idea that it doesn't matter what you believe, you can be a Methodist. What's the attraction to joining a church that, you know, his chief characteristic is everybody disagrees with each other. So there became a kind of reaction to that. Yeah. And so if you may remember in 84, a new commission was formed. That's the year I was born. I don't I don't remember that. No. Yeah. No, right. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, it's fine. I was just making an age yeah. joke. Go ahead. Go ahead. In well, 84. I think what happened was that in the mid to late 80s, the, the more traditional element began to be more ascendant. You had the adoption of a new theological statement in 1988 mm -hmm. that expunged the word pluralism, that reasserted the primacy of scripture. Um the, one of the key things that has changed in the last five to 10 years has been the, this idea of ecclesial defiance. I think what everybody took for granted for the longest time, what I took for granted was that, you know, we could argue about anything, but at the end of the day, we were all duty bound to abide by the decisions of general conference sure. and abide yeah. by the discipline. Yeah. And that began to break down 
uh, within the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. And so it got to the point where it almost didn't matter what general, well, it doesn't now, it doesn't matter. The general conference can make all the decrees it wants. Judicial yeah. council can issue the decisions that it wishes and whole conferences can just essentially thumb their nose at that. And that's just not a sustainable model. And also I think it doesn't bode well, as you've alluded to for the future, because what's happening now is as many of the conservative leaders are leaving the nomination, um, this centrist progressive coalition is going to come under increasing strain. There was a column that Lonnie Brooks put out. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Ago. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah. Um, he's a leading lay person from the Western jurisdiction, progressive. And he basically said, once the conservative leadership has mostly departed, the this coalition is going to break down because they've set a precedent. The precedent that they've set in the last five or 10 years is that if you have a determined minority, who just doesn't want to abide by the decisions of general conference, mm -hmm. which is our way of making, this, you know, how, how we govern ourselves. They can dig in their heels and just say no, fold their arms and sit down in the mud and say no, we're not going to do it. Right. And if they have an amenable general uh, annual conference leadership, nothing can be done about it. Right. So there's going to be plenty of things for the progressives and the centrists to fight about, mm -hmm. and they're going to wind up, I think, continuing to have this problem go forward because the accountability. Has broken down. I think the integrity of the connectional structure has been fatally undermined. So Lovett Weems put out a brief article a month ago saying pretty much um, ecclesiastical disobedience has been a part of Methodism from the get-go. When, when you look throughout the history of the Methodist movement, you know, especially prior to the formation of the United Methodist Church, there have been several points at which the General Conference spoke, but they just didn't carry the moral authority or uh, something. I, I forget his, his yeah, uh, moral authority or oomph. That's the way I, I summed it up. <laughs> and I I, uh, I I argued, I had a piece where I argued with him against that, but the overall point I think does still stand that there have been points of ecclesiastical disobedience along the yeah. way. Um, what I would say to that is just that the, the far-left uh, neo-Marxist woke thing is just a different beast than those who came before. It is it is not going to uh, calm down and chill out once they've gotten their way. Rather, it's a it's a continual revolution where there have to be enemies. I would not disagree. Uh, there, there is a there is a it's a different animal these days. There's this this mentality of I think I said in that presentation, maybe it was in the Q&A part that you saw a shift that I have seen has been how we how we disagree it, right. it used to be that we could say uh, i think i'm right and you, i think you're wrong mm -hmm. and i you know i have no problem with that you think you're right and you think i'm wrong great mm -hmm. but it's it's come now to the place where people say well i think i'm right and i think you're evil yeah well and that's, and I, a, that's a different animal i think that i think that dovetails nicely into the thing i definitely wanted you to talk about which was your role on the commission of general conference and if i mm -hmm. could how about i recapitulate the the lead up to this and then you correct where i'm wrong but uh, General Conference 2020 was on the heels of General Conference 2019, where the traditional plan was passed and the the conservatives uh, won the legal, legal litigious battle. And we were going to, in 2020, uh, instantiate the, the denomination with a traditionalist ethos. But when COVID happened, it got prolonged till the next year. In 2021, it was still going on. So hopefully it was going to be in 2022. Um, there were people who were skeptical that the conference was even going to be held. They, they already uh, supposed that the denomination bureaucracy uh, elite who lean left and were not fans of the traditional plan, didn't even want to present it in 2019, that they, their strategy was just to delay and demoralize. And you, as a conservative who was widely known as a conservative, put out a public statement in some fashion saying, I'm on the committee I'm going to make sure that they operate with integrity. You don't need to worry about corruption here. But several months later, uh, the the Commission on General Conference put out a statement that, you know what, it just can't happen. It's going to happen in 2024. And then you published through the WCA an article saying this commission never took seriously the option of meeting in 2022. The way I recall it, and I didn't read it again before we, we talked today, mm -hmm. you said um, they cited – vaccines and passports being a primary issue that would keep our African brothers and sister delegates from participating 
they never even checked in with them until the day before the meeting was to be held where we would make that decision. And by that point, it was too late to gather accurate information. So it just spoke to the leadership of that committee, even though the official statement was, we'll look into this and try and make it happen. They never had any intention of making it happen because it didn't comport with the interest of the established bureaucracy. What I'll stop there, correct what I got wrong, build on top of what I offered. Yeah, I think you essentially got it. I, uh, yeah, and it's, I guess it was September of 2021, I sent out a, I wrote an essay that was widely published saying, hey, I think the commission is doing everything it can to make sure this happens, hang in there, it's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna be all right. And I, uh, I guess I started to get uh, concerned. Well, the red flag went up in a January meeting. We had scheduled, for people who don't know, the commission on general conference is the body that has to plan it, that has to actually do everything from engaging the, um, the venue and, and negotiating with vendors and signing contracts, setting up the schedule, you know, making the hotel reservations, all that has to be done, getting visas for all the foreign delegates. The commission oversees that. There's staff that does a lot of the, the groundwork. On that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the commission meets on a regular basis to oversee all that. So we had planned meetings for January, February, and March of 2021. Um, no, 2022, last year, 2022. And, um, and which I thought, and we all thought we were going to be firming up all the details for the upcoming general conference, Mm -hmm. which was supposed to happen last summer. Then at the January meeting, out of the blue, someone made a motion that we delay it two more years. And a number of us were kind of taken aback by that and said, why? And they said, well, because of the pandemic, it's still raging. There had been an uptick, if you remember, in the fall of of COVID cases. Well, at that point, people said, wait a minute, it's, it's premature. Let's defer this decision. We have two more meetings to go. And I began asking questions. Well, do we know the vaccination rates of our delegates overseas? Mm-hmm. What's the status of people getting their visas? Uh, what's the wait times and all that? They didn't have any of those answers. So I asked for that information to be made available at our next meeting in February. Mm-hmm. Well, a day or two, I guess a couple of days, maybe a couple of days before the meeting, I sent out a letter to all of the commission members outlining why I thought we needed to push forward with this and reminding them that we were supposed to receive this report. And that must have jogged their memory because I think it was that day or the next day, suddenly an email went out to all the delegates around the world saying, let us know about your vaccination rates, mm-hmm. uh, which said to me that they hadn't really taken it seriously. They were trying to cover themselves. So when we met, um, one of the, because the, by that point, it was a month later, many corporate bodies, even church bodies were moving forward with plans for international conferences in the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, then COVID wasn't the issue so much now as the wait times on delegates getting visas. In some cases, the wait times at the embassies or the consulates was months out. Mm-hmm. In some cases, it didn't look like they'd be able to get the visa after the general conference met. That's why I pressed on questions. Well, have we been monitoring that? Mm-hmm. Um, no. Have we sent out letters of invitation? Because for them to request an interview to get a visa, they had to have a, an official letter of invitation. Mm-hmm. None of them have been sent out. Um, why not? Have you been monitoring? If you knew it was a six-month wait time, you should have had that letter out six months ahead. Right? right. It just hadn't been done. And all of that led me to conclude that this thing was a fait accompli um, and that they never wanted this to happen. And I resigned in protest over the decision. We had a three-and-a-half-hour debate um, about whether or not to move forward with the general conference as planned in August of – in late August, early September of 2022. When the vote was taken, I think it was – 14 to 9, something like that, 14 to 10. What was fascinating about that was that the argument from many of the progressives who voted to delay was that it wouldn't be fair to our African delegates if they couldn't get here. Mm-hmm. But the African delegates on the commission voted to have it, saying, we'll make it happen, don't worry. Or if we, you know, we'll do the best we can. How many African delegates were on the commission? I don't remember exactly, but there were there were four or five, something like that. Okay. Um, out of, I forget how many, 30. 32 members, something like yeah. that. Um, so to me, it was it was just, it was farcical. And then I'll give you a little bit of inside baseball that I don't think has been widely known or told. Mm-hmm. After the vote was taken, and it was such a divided vote, one of the members of the majority made a motion that we vote again, and this time everyone vote yes so that we can present to the church <laughs> a unanimous decision. <laughs> and I almost lost it at that point. But thankfully, another member of the commission said I could not do that in good conscience, and it was dropped. But all of that 
and if you go back and read the article, I, I cite some numbers and dates that I think to me, the evidence was clear that this was something they simply didn't want to let happen. And I yeah. think there were three reasons for it. The first was to stop the protocol. Uh, I, I, the protocol, you may remember, your yeah. viewers may remember, yeah, do it. in January of 2020, the plan was put out to amicable, have an amicable rather than a, a rancorous division, as has happened in so many other denominations. And it had wide support. It looked like it was going to happen um, in Minneapolis in May of 2020. But then, of course, COVID intervened. We had to delay it. I think what began to happen is institutional leaders realized just how big the losses were going to be mm -hmm. if, if they made this po it possible for annual conferences and churches to simply vote themselves to one or another successor denomination. I mean, look what happened in Texas in the last, you know, six to nine months. Yeah. Nearly half the churches in Texas left. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, and that's with each individual church having to do homework, educate their people, take votes, pay money to get out. Imagine if the protocol had passed, all of the conferences in Texas might well have voted themselves out. Every right. church in Texas might be gone. Yeah. They saw that coming. They didn't want that to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, and so the giving themselves two years to figure out ways to combat it or modify it or undermine it would would uh, would do that. Um, another thing I think that was in their minds, and again I'm piecing this together. I, I was not I was not part of the smoke filled rooms <laughs> that I imagine. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where these discussions went on, but you know, from looking at the evidence and talking to people in the know, they really expected the church would accept that decision. They accepted, they expected that conservatives would say, okay, we'll wait two more years and everything would be kind of put on ice for two years. Uh, you know, conservatives tend to be rule followers. We tend to respect institutions. Well, wait, let me, not in, let me, yeah. uh, I, what I've thought happened was they knew exactly what was going to happen was that conservatives had been telling their constituencies for a decade, Hey, we're going to figure this out. We're going to figure this out. And then once again, no, okay, we have to wait two more years, and a bunch of conservatives would just jump ship. They would say, the WCA hasn't come through for us. Uh, so they knew that the GMC was going to have to pull the trigger. They called the bluff, and what do you know, the GMC pulled the trigger, and then they were able to control, to, to hold the whole deck of cards and decide the terms on which churches would and could exit and exact the highest price that they possibly could. I I don't think so. I okay. don't think so. I don't okay. think that they did. Um I've had conversations with people who talk to leading bishops, and the bishops were shocked that the GMC decided to launch May 1st. Really? They didn't think that was going to happen. <laughs> they were also shocked that once that was made known, that the WCA said that it was going to stick around. We weren't leaving the UMC. We were going to continue to advocate for accountability and on behalf of the churches and pastors of like mind. I, I really do think they thought we would we would be okay with waiting two more years. I mean, and they thought, I'm sure they thought there'd be some losses. They knew that there were folks that were going to be impatient, but mm -hmm. I don't, I don't think so. I think they thought that by and large, we would go along with it. Okay. I think they were surprised. Well, that's, that's interesting news to me. I had not considered that. So, um, okay. So we, there were two, there were three reasons total. You covered two. What's yeah, the I think third the reason? The third piece is interesting as well. I think it was how they framed this. They framed it as not a cancellation, but a postponement. Um, and I remember in the meetings, the language used was we cannot find any warrant or authorization in the discipline to cancel a general conference. Mm -hmm. So we're going to postpone it. And I thought that was interesting because there's a lot of stuff going on that there's no warrant for in the, in right. the discipline. Yeah. Yes. Um, that's different from saying it's prohibited. But anyway, what I think the thinking behind that was that they get to preserve the larger number of delegates. See, if, if general conference is canceled, Mm -hmm. And 2024 is actually the 2024 general conference. You have to have new elections based upon right. more recent membership statistics, yes. which means that the U.S. gets a smaller share of delegates. Yes. It's a postponement. It rests on earlier membership statistics, and the U.S. maintains a larger share of delegates. Well, and especially and – so, so that was the original, and then since then, the Judicial Council has validated that, and then right. – uh, it, it, it's even more convenient for the institution because so many evangelical right-leaning Americans are now no longer part of the connection. A lot of the delegates that would represent conservatism right. are now gone. African delegates sure. are still in place, um, right. but whether or not that's going to be able to stem the tide, that's probably going to be enough to stop the Christmas covenant, but it's probably not going to be enough to stop the change in sexual ethics, which will then result in a hemorrhaging in Africa. So there are a lot of big, uh, big forces at play for right now, but you're thinking that the 
the the rhetoric at that point, the the wording at that point already telegraphed this this later decision that it would not be a new general conference. It would be a, po a postponed conference. Yeah. Sure. And that all makes sense to me. And it's impossible to tell the future and see these different eventualities. But it does seem to me that um, that the managerial elite, um, the, the the bureaucracy and the, the bishops of the United Methodist Church have engaged in kind of like this wargaming, uh, strategizing stuff and, and looked at different eventualities. And if this, then that, you know, this is what we'll do. And it seems to have worked out really marvelous. In fact, I can't really at this point imagine how it could have worked out any better for them than it currently oh, has. I think, yeah, they're very good at it, uh, and it's been very effective. In fact, now with all the disaffiliations, which also I think took them by surprise, I don't think they expected so many churches to go that route, mm. um, especially when you saw early bishops saying, you know, we might lose 1% or 2%. Well, it's already 7 moving to 8 It's going to probably be 15 or 20% that wind up leaving. Mm -hmm. uh, but... Um, they're very good at it, and it's worked out even better, I think, than they anticipated because, as you said, so annual conferences, like I think there's one Texas annual conference, so two-thirds of their churches left. Northwest Texas, yeah. Yeah, but they're still going to have the same number of delegates going in 2024 as if all those churches were still there because mm -hmm. it's a postponed 2020 general conference, mm -hmm. which means they're going to have an inflated um, influence in terms of, of number of votes. Mm -hmm. and. I'm assuming I haven't seen the numbers. But I'm assuming that, that probably a bunch of their delegates who are more conservative have left. Right. Who will they be replaced by? Yeah. Probably people that are more centrist or progressive. Yeah, I think so that was a recent decision was that they can replace delegates now, um, and so that okay. that works even more in the favor of the institutional. Mm -hmm. uh, yep. So yeah, it's a it's a worst case scenario for conservatives that are staying, and then the optimists are saying, oh, they'll be good to us when we're in the minority. And we'll just see, you know, I, I'm of the mind that uh, based on what we've seen with Episcopalianism and Lutheranism and Presbyterianism, we've already seen this divide happen in other bodies. And what has happened is that the left has eaten conservatives lunch and made it so hostile that they have to leave or just be completely um, uh, right. henpecked and, and cucked. I don't know what the right words are, but it's it's not a good picture, um, and so I think there are a number of centrists that are going. It, no, we can go different for us, and I'm at this point. I'm just going. At what point do we go? No, there there are certain limitations to our idealism, and there are certain things we cannot accomplish that people couldn't up until now. So, okay, uh, I watched an episode of an interview with the Texas Church. I can't remember the name of it. I'm sorry, but it was with okay. Bishop Monde Muyombo, who. Um, I'm sure you know who he is, but one of the things he said, there are a number of pieces around the Commission on General Conference that are disputed. Uh, what he disputes is um, something that, I don't know how many people know, the right-leaning caucuses got together and said, hey, if, if um, uh, vaccines are going to be an issue for delegates, let's get them to vaccines. We have money. Let's give every single delegate in Africa that can't get a hold of one themselves, let's get them vaccines. They approached left-leaning caucus groups who wanted nothing to do with it. And then in the letter they said they also addressed, uh, approached um, United Methodist entities to make it happen, and they weren't interested, so they just went about it themselves. Now, Monde Muyombo, Bishop Monde of Katanga Annual Conference, Central Conference, said um, that he was never approached, that the evangelical caucus groups just simply sent money to people and didn't make sure it was uh, spent the right way, didn't communicate with people as to how they intended it to be spent. Supposedly, one of his delegates just showed up and said, they sent me all this money. I don't know what to do with it. I'm going to buy a cow or something. Um, he, he said this should have been done by going to the Commission on General Conference. This should have been done by, by reaching out to me personally, and they did not do those things. So... Uh, can you speak to any of, of what Muyombo said? Yeah, I, sure. Um, I know that I know that the WCA leadership did approach denominational officials and said, we're willing to work with you to, to help get these delegates vaccinated. And there just wasn't much response. So that's that definitely did happen. Um, I can't really speak to how the how things are delivered in every case. I mm -hmm. don't know. But I know that a lot of vaccines did. You know, a lot of money did go to get vac people vaccinated and to get people to clinics where they could get them. Whether in some cases money's got diverted, stuff happens. I don't, I can't speak to that. Sure. But um, 
but no, I, I, to me, that was an interesting little controversy. You know, people are saying they can't wait. You know, the, the vaccine rates or vaccination rates are, are slowing. We're not going to get them done. So we said, well, let's get it done. Let's, what's the problem? Mm-hmm. We've got all these, all these denominational resources. Let's do what we can to make sure that happens. And there seemed to be very little interest on the part of various, in fact, you know, one of our major emphases has been about global health, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, how come we could, we could have brought that, those resources to bear, but it just wasn't being done. Yeah. Again, another bit of evidence that they were not necessarily interested in having this general conference happen from my perspective. Yeah. Yeah. The other area of controversy, and I haven't heard anyone talk, I kind of tried to get to the bottom of it and I got stagnated. Um, uh, Liberian leader, Jesse, Jerry Kula, uh, mm-hmm. is a leader of um, the Africa Initiative. He, he mm-hmm. sent out a, a public statement saying African delegates want to come. We're ready. We'll get vaccinated. We've got our visas in order. We are good to go. Let us come. But then another guy from Nigeria, Ande Emmanuel, who was fired by the bishop and has been uh, leading a kind of rebellion against him in Nigeria, um, started another group whose membership is not entirely known to me, the Africa Voices of Unity, that then Mm -hmm. put a, a public statement saying, no, these are all lies. We are not ready. Please postpone. And then um, it's just been this really hard situation where you're going, well, who's speaking the truth? Because we can't get boots on the ground. We can't go validate. So uh, people like David Scott have tried to write on the situation over there and then have to retract articles because they just can't be confirmed. But the, the validation and verification of the readiness of delegates couldn't even be established um, we were relying on on local people to collect that information rather than the Commission on General Conference, which would have had the means to do so, but simply did not use it. Would that be an accurate way to sum it up? I think they could have done more. And I think you may recall that, it, what was it, the day before our meeting or a day and a half before our meeting, an email went out to all of the delegates asking about their vaccination status, mm-hmm. which, and yet of the 800 and whatever it was, 880 some delegates, they got over 500 responses in that time. Mm-hmm. Over ninety percent said they they'd been vaccinated. That's so, good to remember. Yeah. Okay. I didn't remember yeah. that. So, you know, no. Obviously, the rest hadn't answered. There was a mm-hmm. bunch that either weren't vaccinated or didn't want to answer. But even in that short period, you saw that there was a significant uh, compliance with that right. requirement. Yeah. Um, and I remember the meeting. I think I put this in the article too when I first raised that question. And this is in January, mm-hmm. last January. Mm-hmm. I said do we know what the vaccination rates are of our delegates? And initially, I said, well, we can't ask that. That's asking for private medical information. I said, we're, we're not asking for their medical records. We're asking for something that would have to be disclosed to get a visa anyway. Right. Yeah, yeah. And then they said, okay, you know, it, it was just odd. <laughs> so um, it was shortly after you put out your article that my bishop had a town hall, virtual town hall meeting, and he actually showed frustration with you. Because let me tell you, buddy, <laughs> you betrayed confidence. These, mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you, these committees need to be able to conduct work in a confidential and safe way, trusting that guys like you are not going to go and, and tell their business to other people, no matter how it looks or what it exposes. And you mm-hmm. betrayed sacred trust whenever you did that, Joe DiPaolo, and you should be ashamed. I, I, I'm being um, a little bit silly because I, I think... Well, I, I question the utility and, and well, at, at, at a certain point, I, I see how many points at which confidentiality is utilized just to hide corruption. Um, it right. seems to me that that, well, you and I have already been talking about the conduct of this commission. It seems quite clear that they did not have any intention of fulfilling their role in a number of ways. It's hard to argue against that. So then the argument becomes, well, you be- betrayed sacred trust. Sure. Did they have any kind of ceremony where they swore you to secrecy? <laughs> no, there was no ceremony. What we we, went, we were in closed session when we had the debate, um, and the main reason that was given for why this had to remain confidential until it was made public was because they then had to go back and negotiate with all of the vendors and the, and the, um, the host site and the convention center. Millions of dollars were at stake, and if it came out publicly prematurely that we were we were not going to hold this then they would be at a disadvantage in dealing with some of those in some of those negotiations <laughs> okay sure so we all said okay and my understanding was that we couldn't say anything until it was made public not that i was forever barred from ever discussing 
okay, what sure. happened. Yeah. Um, now, maybe others understood it that way, but that's not, what, and nor do I think that's very healthy. As you say, there should be transparency. If there's nothing to hide, we'll talk about the internal debate. Why not? And we can have different opinions on what happened. Um, so that was why, and I just felt very strongly that this needed to be told. Um, because it just it just lacked integrity. When I resigned, I, I sent my my letter to the chair. I said I've, I've lost confidence in the integrity of the process. I can no longer be a part of this, and um, and I felt it needed to be told. Um, and so I did. I think you're right. Confidentiality is often used to just cover stuff up. Yeah, I well, I got a story I can't tell yet, but someday. Um, so there's another committee. Well, so my concern is at the general conference, there's so much information that needs to be digested. And to my to my understanding, we have a conciliar government. All delegates right. are equally entitled to the full breadth of information available. But that's not really how it works. Rather, information is funneled into different committees that are large, and then they have executive committees that do a lot of the executive decision-making. And, and then what gets right. brought to the floor is the byproduct of really a, a very small number of people digesting the information in ways that they want and coming up with uh, recommendations. W one committee that's been especially influential is one that most people don't even the no know the name of, which is the Standing Committee on Central Conference Matters, right. which is ostensibly to represent the interests of non-American uh, United Methodist leadership. But um, to people like me, you can't speak with certainty about it because None of the meeting minutes are recorded or released. Uh, they have an executive committee that makes decisions, brings it to the larger committee that then adopts them, and then brings it to the general conference, which adopts them. Um, mm -hmm. They were the ones that gutted the traditional plan and made it largely unworkable behind closed doors. What was eventually brought to the general conference for adoption was very different from what was submitted to their committee. Moreover, they created the language uh, that now is being used to justify central conferences not being able to use paragraph 2553 in order Stunning. to disaffiliate. So right. this has been a very influential committee. Most recently, they brought uh, something resembling the Christmas, uh, Christmas covenant uh, to the, mm -hmm. the committee as they met in Germany. And even though central conference delegates spoke against it, eventually they managed to get all but one uh, to vote for it. So mm -hmm. once again, you have the, the, the denominational leadership bringing legislation to the general conference that does not actually represent the interests of the central conference, even though we have a whole committee designed to represent the interests of the central conferences. So it, it just seems to me that, that when you have a dynamic as, as, as clearly compromised as this, the only solution to that is transparency, open meetings, no more executive session. Um, does well, that there, there's a reason for having executive sessions? I mean, when you're dealing with personnel matters, when you're dealing with sensitive matters of accusations that have been made or salaries and benefits, you, that stuff doesn't need to be made public. But when it comes to the decision making that's going to be uh, coming before the church for decision, why should the church not know some of the reasoning that went behind it, some of the argumentation that went behind it? Mm -hmm. But I think you're right that there's, you know, it's so funny. It, so much of this sounds like Congress. You know, mm -hmm. it's like oh, sure. things turn on procedural things like, mm -hmm. you know, how committees, you know, who gets elected to committees and how agendas are set, where things are put on the agenda, how delegates are apportioned. So many of these seemingly mundane things often can have an enormous impact on the outcomes. Right. And a lot of us folk who are mainly focused on our local churches, we're not as attuned to that stuff. Well, yeah, yeah, that's that's what has really allowed for all of this to go on for decades longer than it really should have, and that's the general ignorance of people in the pews and the general reluctance of clergy who understand this to speak openly and honestly about it with their people, the general reluctance on the part of clergy who should understand it to just take the time to learn. Um, it's it's There have been several different factors at play that have just worked for what I would term the, the corruption of this institution. Um, but, but in the last number of years, it's been changing because of social media. Social media, I think, is a mixed blessing, to be sure. But it's harder and harder for things to be kept quiet. I mean, it used to be, and again, I've been around a while. I've been a pastor for 35 years under, uh, under appointment, 38 mm -hmm. if you include my student pastor days. Mm -hmm. um, for a lot of those years, 
if crazy stuff went on at an annual conference, you just didn't tell your congregation. They didn't find out about it. They didn't get riled up. Yeah. Well, now you can't do that because it's all out there. It's right. on Facebook. It's on conference emails. And people know what's going on. And it's harder and harder to keep that stuff quiet. Yeah, yeah, it, it is kind of exciting. And when, man, the, the age of alternative media sure is wonderful and exciting and scary uh, because, mm-hmm. uh, it, well, one of the things that's been revealed is that the, the arbiters of distribution of information, journalists, have often mm-hmm. gotten uh, been compromised by ideological loyalties, and you don't know who you can trust. And you, there's somebody you think you can trust, but then they really uh, flub some reporting here. So it just requires a lot of diligence, and um, I, I, it's hard to summon that level of energy for it. And a lot of people just check out for understandable reasons. But but you, we're going to turn it to you. You are. Um, serving now in a congregation that is not going to be disaffiliating. They're not going GMC, even though you would be theologically sympathetic with uh, conservatives leaving. You're not going to be one of them, it looks like. It looks like you're staying, you're serving that church, um, at least indefinitely, uh, or uh, for an unknown amount of time. You're going to be part of the United Methodist Church, even though you've seen a lot of its warts and, and things to be concerned about. So do you have any clarity at this point about how it is that you're going to try and uh, uh, continue to minister in good conscience and and serve mm-hmm. your people and serve your conference and serve the connection, knowing what yeah. you know, having spoken what you've spoken? Uh, what's what's the game plan? It's a good question. Um, so the church that I serve is, as I said, it's an urban downtown church. So it's got a you know, pretty fairly diverse group of folks here. There's you know, just enough folks who are more progressive and uh, more that are institutionally loyal that, you know, any attempt to try to vote to disaffiliate, I think we just have split it down the middle and really damaged its, you know, really compromised its ability to survive, I think, long sure. term. Yeah. Um, and I don't want that. You know, I want, you know, the, the pastor in me wants to keep everybody here. Sure. Um, so I've actually inaugurated a process here. I've, convened a committee uh, called the Committee on a Third Way that's seeking some creative third option for this congregation mm-hmm. that doesn't require an either-or approach, but we'll see where that goes. There's a lot of interest in that because it's funny because the one thing that people seem to agree on, left, right, or center, is that nobody trusts the conference. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yikes. Um, uh-huh. Okay. Uh, as for me, uh, you know, I mean, I love the work that this church is doing. I love the ministry that we're doing. Um, but I, I'm, I'm waiting to see what happens in 2024, what the outcome of that will be, and whether I can in good conscience for me. I'm, I'm not that many years from retirement. I'll be 62 later this year. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes feel like I'm going to be in the position of Moses. You know, I get to help people head toward the promised land, but I don't get to be there myself. Mm. <laughs> I mm. get to die in the wilderness. <laughs> um, it's not a bad wilderness for me here. I got to be honest about that. But it's... Um, <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, I think things are changing every month. Things shift and yeah. we don't know how things are unfolding. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm still praying and discerning. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you're right. Yeah. The, the, the duck, the deck is continually being reshuffled and, and, uh, it's, it's impossible to predict. So, um, I, I think I, I'm very interested. You have the bird's eye view. You have the, the inner world. If you could be in Bishop Bickerton's place and issue something like a state of the church address to the United Methodist Church and just minister to the whole kit and caboodle, speak to everybody, what do you think would be the most helpful thing that you could offer that would be a blessing to the United Methodist flock? Hmm. Interesting question. Well, I think I would be more honest about you know, what do they say? The first task of leadership is to state accurately where you are, right? What reality is. And I think the reality is that the denomination is in far deeper trouble than most of the leaders want to admit publicly. When you look at the numbers of churches that have closed, um, but the GCFNA puts out statistics. And uh, last time I checked, something like 3,300 congregations in the U.S. have closed, either from just closing or from disaffiliating or abandonment just in the last three years, just in the last three years. Mm-hmm. And that, I think we're down, Moses Kumar, who's head of GCFA, in a recent article was quoted as saying that we're down to 28,000 and change in terms of the number of congregations in the U.S. Yikes. So you're talking about 
somewhere between 10 and 15% that have closed or, or left in the last three years. Yeah. And many that are remaining are hanging on by a thread. Um, uh, and, and with all that's happening with the next several waves of disaffiliation, if they're permitted to go forward, um, you're going to probably see thousands more. It, you got to be honest with folks, as you say, transparent about the crisis we're in. And so you disagree. I mean, his his approach was cast a vision for the future, be optimistic, demonize the people who are leaving. We don't need to worry about them. You don't think that that is is the right way no, to go you, to to shore shore things up? No, no, I don't think so because it's just it just plays into this whole playbook of us versus them, good versus bad people in the church, and which is always puzzling to me because on the one hand they say. No, we think you're bad. We think you're full of hate. We think you're full of violence. But we love you and we want you to stay, <laughs> which I don't quite understand that, um, unless they don't really mean it. It's a little schizophrenic. Case. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, so if I were if I were the bishops, and of course I'm not, I think we've, we've created a culture in which we do not elect leaders, we elect managers. Um, and they're trying to manage this decline as best as they can. But I would think if the bishops really believe the stuff they're saying, that uh, most folks want to stay together, that most folks don't want to leave, then let it become a freer process. Yeah. Let the churches go that want to go. Yeah, let's put that let to the test. Let's just yeah. go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and if you're right, it will only be a small group. Yeah. And you'll be able to move forward. And if you're not, then you need to do some reassessment. Yeah. Yeah. As it is, it's let's make things as hard as possible. Oh, look, not many people can do it. Oh, look, nobody wants to leave. Everybody wants to stay. And it's 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 it, it's hard to stretch that into anything resembling honesty. Um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge your presence on the WCA. What's it called? The Coordinating Board? What What's what's the entity called? Uh, the Global Governing Council. Okay. And so you're an influential voice in this midwife to the GMC body, this mediating entity that's advocating on on behalf of churches that are no longer happy in the United Methodist Church and need to find a way out. Um, I serve on the WCA in in Oklahoma, the the coordinating board here. I'm not the coordinator; I'm just a regular member. Um, the WCA has gotten a bad name. Um, there are a number of people that, if they just hear that acronym, they don't want to be a part of it. And right. To a certain degree, there's nothing to be done about that. They just once you put a bad taste in people's mouth about something, it's hard to take that out. But do you think there are any uh, mistaken impressions about the WCA that would be easily spoken to or remedied right now by a representative, a representative like you? Sure. Well, some of the stuff that I've heard, um, you know, there's this narrative out there that it's just a bunch of you know good old Southern white boys kind of kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. It's not true. Well, on the Global Governing Council, and people that, as I've gotten to know some of these folks over the last, gosh, what is it now, six, seven years, they are some of the most loving, gracious people. They they really love the church. Mm -hmm. We have women and people of color. We have that are in leadership, um, and that and that, and it's interesting. I think I I saw your your video on the the Lovett Weems report, mm -hmm. um, you know, and. And I think you, I thought you nailed it. I think you did a great job on on that. Thanks. Uh, you know, the, this narrative that this is just a racist movement is kind of the latest narrative they're trying to put forward. Mm -hmm. uh, you because know, most of the churches that are leading are white. Well, yeah. What was it eight years ago, seven years ago? The Pew Foundation did a study and found that United Methodist churches in America are ninety four point nine percent white. Yeah, yeah. If you want to so, use the word overwhelmingly white, right. apply it to the United Methodist Church yeah. as a whole. You yeah. know, yeah. Uh, that's a pot calling the kettle black, man. The other thing I would say is that a lot of us, myself included on the WCA board, for a long time, we we really were very committed um, to, to trying to reform the United Methodist Church. The, we thought, in fact, a number of us, as we began assembling ideas for what became the Global Methodist Church, a lot of us thought that if we could, if we could consolidate the, the wins in 2019, if we could continue to, to see uh, this coalition of conservative votes around the world, you know, reaffirm that and, and shore up accountability measures that we would basically be putting together a blueprint for reform, not a new denomination. Right. And that maybe the next 10, 15, 20 years, we would have to put a lot of energy in to reforming the United Methodist Church. And that's what a lot of us thought we were doing. It only was in the breakdown of the system in the wake of 2019 mm -hmm. that led a lot of folks to think, no, it's, it's not going to happen. The leadership is just 
they control all the levers of power. They're not going to let this happen. Yeah. Um, and but so most of the folks that I knew, many on the board, there were some from the beginning who wanted out to be sure. But most were no. We we were we most of us have been in for many years, and our desire was to reform and see the United Methodist Church remember who it was, yeah. remember who it is, yeah. remember what it believes. It's a sad thing, you know. I, I did a report on the Great Plains Annual Conference, um, and they've they've done disaffiliation very well. It's been mm -hmm. an amicable process. Um, and the, my main takeaway there was just saying it really didn't have to go the way it's going in a lot of places. We didn't have to act this way. Many choices were made by uh, people that just chose to 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 go dark, you know, to go dirty. And um, it, it's okay to be sad about that. I think. For me personally, I think it's okay to be angry about that. I just think righteous anger is it has to be managed and and guarded. But right. um, you know, at this point, I, I believe in the power of prayer. Um, but I believe God, He does what He does. You know. So, mm -hmm. but I, I I like ending my my conversations with people exhorting anyone who viewed uh, to pray. You know, and so, um, I mean, there are, of course, thousands of things we can and should pray regularly, but um, you've already gotten to give your abbreviated State of the Church address. Would you um, exhort anyone who participated in watching this to what kind of prayers you think they should be saying over the coming days and weeks? I would say to pray for the United Methodist Church, its leadership. God is still able. I mean, I, for me... <laughs> From my human standpoint, it seems broken beyond repair, but you know, not all things are possible with God. Mm -hmm. I pray for the folks that are moving to form the Global Methodist Church. Pray, pray that we would find a way, and I've been advocating this for years, to go through this process in a way that doesn't just mirror the culture, mm -hmm. the kind of hostility, the kind of demonization, that stuff really, I really pray we could put that stuff aside. Right. Um, and that would be something that I mean, that's what I pray for all the time. But it, you're right. It did not have to go this way. It, it, there have been so many missed opportunities along the way that, that this could have gone differently. Yeah. Uh, and we just, we just seem to keep making the, the wrong, wrong decisions to make it worse rather than better. Mm -hmm. And if I could ask, if I could ask some of the leadership questions, I would ask things, you know, I, I think I've said this too in public statements, you know, would Jesus try to force people to stay with him and continue to follow him if they didn't want to and try to make them give up their property if they mm -hmm. refused the yeah. question answers itself right right well yeah, that's i've always thought there's an incident in the gospel of john where he's preaching on how his his body is true food and his blood is true drink and they just can't handle that statement and they leave and he doesn't chase him down. He doesn't. And then he looks at his disciples and he says, what are you going to leave me to? And it's all, I mean, some people read that as, oh, are you going to leave me to? But I think he's challenging them. Right. I can see you're offended. You're going to leave me too? Because he doesn't need us. We need him. And we've got the relationship wrong when we imagine that, that, um, that power clings uh, right. to people. And so, or that God. I love the, I love the, I love the disciples response to him. Where are we going to go? Yeah, you have the words of You're life. You're the one who has the words of eternal yeah. life. There's nowhere else. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And so being yeah. you and 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 conservative, you know, well, it, to be fair, liberals believe that they have the words of life too. Sure. And conservatives, everybody think, but we we have lacked the integrity to say, even though we're using the same words, we mean very different things, and mm -hmm. it's not the same words of life. Even if we're, it's not a magical incantation. It's not about the the order of vowels and syllables that come out. It's about the content. And and the content of your words of life is different than mine. And because of that, we can't walk together anymore. Because we lack that proactive discernment, that's why we're seeing the slow train wreck we're seeing right now. And we also lack humility. And it would be nice to have a little bit of that on in, in these things too. You know, uh, I think obviously I think I'm right on things. And others yeah. are wrong. They think yeah. they're right and I'm wrong. Of course, yes. But we're all walking by faith, yeah. you know? And it would be nice for people to have some humility. And and I love the passage in Acts 5 with Gamaliel um, in the Sanhedrin. Mm -hmm. When, if you remember, the disciples are brought in. This is after Pentecost. They're preaching about Jesus. They're being told, you better stop or we're going to jail you. We're going to beat you. I think they do wind up beating them. Mm -hmm. um, and Gamaliel, who's a Pharisee, he's a good Pharisee, uh, he stands up and says, wait a minute. Don't do that. Let them go. Mm -hmm. If this thing is of God, you cannot stop it. 
Mm-hmm. If it's not of God, it's going to collapse under its own weight. Right. Yeah. If we had that attitude and could give each other a blessing and say, all right, you go down in accordance with your vision, mm-hmm. give us the freedom to do what we need to do in accordance with ours, and then just see which one God is in. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. How about I say a short prayer? We'll conclude, and then I'll just visit with you for a couple minutes before we end the, the podcast. Okay. Thanks for having me. Well, yeah. Father, uh, we thank you for Joe and his leadership in the denomination and him taking his pastoral role seriously. We ask that you continue to nourish his mind as he addresses the problems of his local congregation and the denomination in which they're located. We want to pray for the United Methodist Church, Father, that you would give them a spirit of humility and integrity, that you would... um, that you would not give power to the darkness and things that happen behind closed doors, but that you would allow conduct to be seen and done in the light, that you would give uh, the leadership and the people a confidence that you can and do work through people without the interference and control of of managerial elites. Uh, We ask, Father, that you would allow for people to be willing um, for you to be in charge and um, for you to guide where denominations, congregations need to be. Father, uh, I personally pray for humility. I, I, I often feel very clear about what's right and what's wrong and who should do what. And I, I ask that you would hold my, let me to hold myself to that same scrutiny uh, and that you would help me to admit when I'm wrong and that uh, you would just help other people to be like that as well. Uh, we don't need more blowhards in the world, Lord. Uh, we need more people who walk with meekness and, um, and servant hearts like your son, Jesus. So help us to continue continue to look to him and his uh, atoning work on the cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, as, as the GMC starts off, Lord, we ask that you would give them those meek and humble hearts that are required for earnest servant leadership. And uh, we pray for the WCA as they stand in the middle and try to be um, brokers of, of, of righteousness despite what people say about them and help them never to help none of the parties left, right, and center, help none of them to play into the caricatures and bigotries that other sides have towards them, but help them to operate in, in uh, integrity and righteousness and uprightness, despite what others say, because we know in the end, Father, you alone are judge, and we will uh, appear before your judgment seat, and you will show mercy on those with whom you will show mercy, but you will bring down your judgment upon those um, who have, have flagrantly worked against you. And uh, so, Father, your will be done. We trust you in all our ways. And we ask that uh, this conversation that, that Joe and I had would lead to the edification and encouragement of many faithful people. And that if it be your will, Father, that it would take powers away from the forces of darkness that seek to uh, undo that which people who loved you have built. So, Father, uh, bless these words that we have shared and bless our ministries as we continue to serve those in our midst. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Joe DiPaolo, everybody, uh, if, uh, if you want to follow him and his ministry, don't. He's a private man. Uh, but no, actually, you're, you're, you're a church, and you are on Facebook, right? And um, uh, is Facebook. there any way that they website. can support your ministry if they want to? Yeah, we have a website which has lots of information. All of our services are there and, and messages and things. So people, and, and my email is there if they want to. It's, um, the website's actually engagegodfirst.org. Oh, very and nice. It's the First United Methodist Church of Lancaster. Very good. There's actually several Lancasters around the country, so it's Lancaster, PA. Okay, <laughs> so. and if you live around Lancaster, PA, considering coming under Joe's instruction, he has a lot to teach.